Thank you and good evening everyone. Great to uh, join with so many forces of the community that have been touched by the prior family. And to you, Barbara, and to uh, Peter and, and Marcus and Reggie, our condolences to the entire family, um, to the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Um, what a couple. You know, we're here to honor the legacy and the life uh, of Peter Pryor. Barbara, we have to include you in that because some are seen as a couple, almost as one. And um, when I read the obituary months ago, and they included the final moments, it was like a Cinderella moment, and it drew a lot of emotion uh, for, I believe, anyone who read that. So we salute you along with Peter. Bear with me a uh, letter of condolence and recognition, a letterhead from the U.S. House of Representatives. But it speaks primarily to the uh, forcefulness of Peter Pryor. He did it with a great eloquence and with this sound sense of presence, a gift that he bore and wore so beautifully. But he fought back against injustice that he faced, unkindness, hurt, discrimination, and inequality. But he did that in a way that embraced that message of Martin Luther King that mo motivated him in a way that spoke truth and wrapped in kindness to make a difference in the lives of people. He made a difference here. If he saw injustice, he made certain people heard about it, and he made it his goal to go forward. So we thank the Carnell team at ABC for having seen in him the greatness that he portrayed and embodied. We thank them for inspiring him to go to Siena and to then go to Albany Law and to make certain that his mark, his presence, his search for justice, he was a drum major for justice. And he, was, he executed that mission in such a fine way with his intellect, passion and compassion, and so many in this region have been touched by his presence and his performance. So he lives forever in the hearts of the capital region in New York and the country for that matter, because his fortune, his fame, and his presence and his performance reach far and wide. So this evening, Barbara, we join with you and your family in embracing his memory and knowing that he will ever live as a spirit in our hearts and an inspiration to continually search for justice, which is the ultimate engagement, I believe, of a strong community. We have that opportunity, we have that ability as a government, as a democracy, and Peter Pryor's commitment should motivate each and every one of us. May he rest in peace. Peter Pryor joined more than a thousand people who packed into Wilborn Temple to listen to a young up-and-coming preacher from Atlanta. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. presaged his famous I Have a Dream speech when he told the eager crowd in Albany, America is essentially a dream, a dream of a land where men of all races, creeds, and nationalities can live together as brothers. He called segregation immoral and said, 
If America is to maintain a first-class nation, she can no longer afford to have second-class citizens. In a profile about Peter Pryor written by Paul Grandall, he's quoted as saying, Pryor hung on to every word. I viewed the speech as a wake-up call to Albany. He told me it stirred powerful meaning feelings in the young lawyer's heart. Peter Pryor died on Martin Luther King Day. He lived a life few could imagine or withstand. He experienced the toxic brutality of racism as a black man in a segregated army, as a black man living in Albany, as a black lawyer representing other black men who were beaten and even killed by white police officers. In every case, the officers were exonerated. Some of these stories were captured in a documentary about the civil rights movement told through the lens of a Knickerbocker News photographer. But in reflecting on the film, Peter Pryor told Paul Grandall, it doesn't fully reveal the absolute hell that blacks went through. It's hard to explain a wounded soul to someone who has never experienced racial segregation and discrimination. As I thought about my remarks tonight, I struggled to find the words to capture how I feel about losing Peter, about the significance of his work for our city, and by extension, our country, and about the gut-wrenching reality of the toxic hate and racism he experienced and fought against, which seems to have risen like a phoenix over these past few years. He knew it was never gone, we knew it was never gone, but its viciousness and deadly consequences seem to have erased decades of what we believe to be progress in our country. I first met Peter and Barbara at a Proctor's Gala. I can't remember if it was 2006 or 2007. I was not a politician then. I was not running for office. It was not on my radar. I was just a fellow board member, attorney, and city resident. We were seated at the same table. And after getting over my starstruck reaction of, I can't believe I'm sitting next to the priors, I recall a wonderful conversation where he and Barbara talked about the theater, about Center Square, about their children. They, of course, bragged on you, Marcus. Uh, they were gracious and kind, but I couldn't quite shake the feeling that he was the only, and how exhausting that must be. That's right. In 2006, he was the only black person on the Proctor's board. He was the first black person on the Proctor's board. How often was that the case in his life? the first, the only. It's exhausting. And yet he endured and persisted because he was Peter Pryor. And inspired by Martin Luther King, he lived Dr. King's exhortation that we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Peter's grandson, Lex, is one of the most gifted writers of his generation, and I mean that. That is not hyperbole. He truly is. He told Paul Randall, Quote, my grandfather grew up in an era of apartheid in the Deep South, and he never lost that anger at how black people were treated. He had a courtly demeanor, but he was also angry at the same time. I don't think that's contradictory. I agree with Lex, and I suspect that his anger extended not just to what he saw in the South, but to what he saw and experienced throughout his life here in Albany. White supremacy is not a theory or a throwback, it's not anachronistic. It's not something that is brought up to make white people feel bad about themselves. 
White supremacy purchased a gun and drove 200 miles and executed moms and dads and grandparents in Buffalo. It is killing black and brown moms during childbirth at rates more than double those for white moms, irrespective of education and income. It led to the disproportionate loss of black and brown lives as COVID ravaged our country. And it is spreading its toxicity to our black and brown children as they watch and wonder what their future will hold. No, Lex. I don't think your father ever lost his anger because he was never given a reason to lose it. And yet, and yet, he figured out how to channel it, to enter courtrooms and boardrooms, and try to win incremental victories in the struggle for racial equality. As we at Albany Law School, sorry, as we at Albany Law School think about honoring Peter Pryor's legacy, I hope we will share his anger. I hope that we will be bold and acknowledge white supremacy, see it as the destructive force that it is, and recognize, as Dr. King did, that to be a first-class nation, we can no longer afford it. I hope we will commit ourselves to ending it. You can start small. You can be that business owner who, when his black employee showed up at a job and was told by the customer, I was told that no black people would be sent here that that customer was fired, not the employee. You can be that employer who, when an employee showed up with a Confederate flag splashed on the front of the hood of his car at Albany High School a few days ago, told that employee they were the ones who were no longer welcome. You can start with what you allow around you. You can call out that buddy who tells a racist joke or the aunt who insists that Asians are to blame for COVID. Don't give it any place to hide. Lex said, my grandfather spent his entire life fighting the world and trying to make peace with it. Our friend, our colleague, one of Albany's finest citizens in the history of our city is at peace. But that doesn't mean that we are done fighting. To Barbara and Marcus and the entire family, thank you for sharing Peter with us. Please accept my deepest sympathy for your loss. Thank you. It is an honor for me to be provided a moment to share with you a portrait of a man who lived a life full of accomplishment and services, but he was much more. This is a celebration of a life well lived. And I thank Barbara and Marcus for this opportunity to address you. Now I believe that I had a special relationship with Peter. But Peter possessed an uncanny attribute that anybody who came into his orbit was special. But indeed, I want to acknowledge that Peter and Barbara had a special relationship with Charles and Charlotte Buchanan, who are both here today. Please indulge me for a moment while I share some thoughts with you about a man who epitomized for me what Martha Luther King taught us. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in the moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenges and controversy. And indeed, Peter stood boldly and enduringly 
during moments of challenges and controversies during his life on behalf of underserved communities. Now the arc of his life is long, but permit me to share some events and memories of him. But I first want to recognize that Peter was a devoted husband <coughs> to Barbara Singleton Pryor for more than 55 years. A loving father of six remarkable children, a revered friend to countless others, and in my opinion, a Renaissance man. And to the surrounding communities of color, he had a larger than life presence, affectionately and respectfully called Lawyer Pryor. No one ever called him Peter Pryor. They called him Lawyer Pryor. In fact, when I was interested in being a lawyer, the first thing my mother said, you've got to go see Lawyer Pryor. You must agree with me that he was a striking, urbane figure, a person who was regal, dignified, poised. He possessed a mellifluous tone, a distinct professorial cadence, scintillating prose that just lent to his charm. And I always remember when I had a conversation with him, he'd always say, may I ask, had you considered, it was just the politeness that he always had, but he was always an engaging storyteller. And I relished the times when he invited me to the house just so I could hear his stories. In fact, he was an inveterate storyteller. No matter where he was, no matter who the audience was, he had a story to tell. And he was at his best telling a story when he had his favorite toddy in hand, a gin and tonic, and he would delight you all. And if you were a real good friend, he sang for you. And when he told these stories, the line may be blurred between fact and fiction, but who cared? Peter loved to sing and dance. But Barbara told me his dancing was a little bit to be desired. <laughs> now, many of you may not know this, but before he decided to become a professional, he wanted to be a Calypso singer. And his stage name was Honeydip. I can't imagine witnessing Honeydipper. So I'm going to leave it to your fertile imagination about Honeydipper. Mid-City Swing Pool located in Manance. 
interesting. My mother told me that when she was a teenager, her and her girlfriend, Dorothy Johnson, went to integrate the swimming pool um, at Mid-City. Mid because Dorothy was so fair and could pass, she was admitted. Or my mother was died because, denied because she was of the darker hue. Peter won that lawsuit on behalf of Miss Snow in the community. There were others, but I was more impressed in, 1960, when in 1962, Peter represented Samuel Clark, who was beaten by the Albany Police Department. That representation had a significant and dire consequence for Peter. It actually raised the ire of the Democratic elite. Lawyers, judges, governmental officials of all stripes ignored him at every turn. He even received death threats, and because of that, he closed his practice. But after service with the state, he returned to practice again. He helped integrate the uh, Albany City Department, um, and he also pursued a civil rights claim against United, uh, United Airlines. But the other thing about Peter was service. If, when Peter would encourage us to pursue service, he would raise two guidelines. To whom much has been given, much is required. Second, he accepted as his creed the former dean of Howard Law School and law professor to many civil rights lawyer, Charles Houston's challenge to his students. A lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. What do you choose to be? Which do you choose to be? To be a social engineer is to be a highly skilled, perceptive, sensitive lawyer who knows how to explore the law and solving the problems of the local communities and bettering the conditions of underprivileged citizens. And Peter did, not, did this not only for his clients, but at the community at large. He helped resurrect the Albany NACP uh, that was floundering at the time. He was instrumental in keeping the Albany Iteration Council alive. He was the co-founder of the Urban League of Albany. And even when he had experienced housing discrimination, he set up a real estate company to help people of color to purchase homes in middle-class neighborhoods. He was on countless boards. He was a region of New York, but he always had time for everyone else. But more importantly to me, I found him to be a renaissance man. And when he was telling some of the stories, I found some of them fascinating. He told me about his grandfather, George L. Pryor, who was one of the first few black attorneys in Virginia in the latter part of the 19th century, who was also engaged in politics. His grandfather authored author a book, Neil Bound, You're Free, in which Peter had an original copy of that book. In fact, Peter was a proud collector of first edition books. He had fine art in his house that was prominently displayed. His father was a minister, he told me about that. His mother actually taught him um, and homeschooled him for a number of years, and she served as a, a, a midwife. Peter was an avid reader, particularly theology and philosophy, and he would rely upon his tremendous memory to sometimes recite passages of his favorite poem or, or piece of uh, prose. He learned the value of hard work at age nine, selling papers in Savannah, and he worked in a kosher market uh, as a young man. But Peter had a boundless heart. 
Not only was he wise, but he was charitable with his time and his wisdom. He shared his insights without pontification. In my view, he was a trailblazer. In my view, he was a pioneer. He was a voice of struggle and the personification of racial pride. He was emblematic of grace, and he was a treasure. This is a moment for us to celebrate a life. Thank you. Jim, uh, on behalf of my family, I'd like to start by thanking the Dean, Alicia, thank you, Board Chair Jeb, Deb Trace, Jim Hacker, um, Mayor Sheehan, Randy Treese, the rest of the Board of Trustees, the incredibly generous donors who've made this possible, many of whom are here today, elected officials, Congressman, thank you so much, that was so kind and warm, um, many that are active elected officials, retired, elected officials who I know meant so much to my father. And I'd like to thank, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in celebration of Peter Malachi Pryor, a man who touched so many in our community. Sophocles said, if it were possible to heal sorrow by weeping and to raise the dead with tears, gold were less prized than grief. My father was certainly a formidable force. He was also pretty funny. At least he tried to be. Without sounding cliche, he would not want this to be a somber occasion. He would want this to be what it is, a celebration of his life and legacy, neither of which portend sadness. In fact, you know, he's watching us from above. He can see through this tent, too. That's him. And uh, with a twinkle in his eye and a slight pursing of his upper lip, he's laughing with his baby sister, Juanita, saying, look at all these people here. I can't believe old so-and-so, who I whooped at court, even showed up. <laughs> Since my father's passing, my family has received an unbelievable outpouring of support. And probably the most common theme I've heard was that of my father's grace, class, and professionalism. My dad was a fearless champion of right over wrong, but it was rarely personal. He used to like to tell a story about how when he was trying a case in Schenectady, when, as my father described it, every time he objected, the judge responded, overruled. Objection, <laughs> Your Honor, overruled. Eventually, my father got fed up and asked to see the judge in his chamber. In chambers, the judge said, you don't remember me, do you, Mr. Pryor? And with my father's characteristic charm, he replied, I don't remember you, judge, but I've heard so many fine things about you. You're known as one of the more distinguished judges in this judicial district. The judge replied, well, do you remember trying the Taylor case back in such and such year? Well, I was the district attorney, and I lost that case to you. My father replied, you know, that's unfortunate, judge, because you did such a fine job. You should have won. My father said he was pleased because back in court, objection, your honor, sustained. Objection, your honor, sustained. That grace should never be mistaken for acquiescence or contentment. My father was in many ways a very angry man. He was angry over the plight of his people, our community, our country. It's what drew him to the practice of law. 
before relocating back to Albany last year one evening over enough glasses of scotch that my dad and I both received a well-deserved scolding from my mother. <laughs> I asked my dad, why didn't you accept a commission in the Army rather than leave? He was a promising young leader, right? Um, he was quickly promoted, and clearly he had earned the respect of his squad. He responded, son, the Army was hell on earth. Why would I stay there under their control when I could leave and try to get some control of my own? He talked not only about how he was treated, but about how the soldiers under him were treated, the conditions, the injustices. He was done fighting the army, but he would continue fighting for the rest of his life. Ever since Peter Malachi was a young man, he didn't, he didn't shy away from the existential conflict of right over wrong. And more importantly, like one of his favorite heroes, Sir Lancelot, my father had a burning desire to be on the side of right. And this is why the scholarship is so I was listening to the Albany Law School oral history podcast, uh, notably the portion where my father discussed how he got into Siena College and ultimately Albany Law School. My father was less than truthful in his response. <laughs> my dad was a funny dude, again, if you knew him well. You could always tell when he was getting ready to deliver either an overly righteous speech to you or he was simply about to bullshit you. Uh, sometimes both at the same time. He'd adjust himself slightly, cross his legs, in his Geechee accent would make way for an ever so slight Queen's English. He'd usually try too hard and get caught up in his native tongue and pronounce words like Africa as Africa. But anyway, it's my dad. In response to that question, uh, my dad came up with this story about, uh, I knew Albany was the home to a number of excellent institutions of learning. <laughs> Knowing my father, I understood that his intent was to rightfully take credit for his own achievements and accomplishments, but like a true lawyer, my father parsed his answer down to the finest of points. While my father was certainly qualified to be admitted to Siena College, it was simply not his research of local colleges or qualifications that was the genesis of his career and legacy. My father came to Albany without a high school diploma, right? He knew he wanted to go to college, so he went to Albany Business College to start by pursuing an associate's degree. Many of you know this story. But the then president of Albany Business College, Mr. Carnell, Prentice Carnell's father, met with him after reviewing his file and said, Mr. Pryor, you're not a good fit for Albany Business College. My father was momentarily crushed, but Mr. Carnell continued, you need to be at Siena College pursuing a bachelor's degree. He took him to Siena College, personally vouched for him, and helped arrange for him to pay for his tuition. Now, despite all of my father's qualifications, the system has always been stacked against him and other men and women of color. Were it not for luck and good fortune, as well as the grace of some enlightened others, the inherent content of my father's character would never have been enough to allow him to excel. Despite all of my father's hard work, what America did not, would not, and will not provide him and many other young men and women of color is an equal opportunity to start at a starting line that provides them with an equal opportunity to finish. This is why this scholarship is so important. As we sit here today, with unanimity, we should absolutely regale in the achievement of a scholarship that not only writes injustices, but truly provides for an opportunity for equity and inclusion. However, just as my father realized that he could no longer serve in an army that didn't value him as a human being, we shouldn't fool ourselves into believing that our work is done. This is why this scholarship is so important. 
As soon as my father graduated from law school, he opened up a part-time private practice at 11 North Street. He did so because he had a string of black clients who needed lawyers, but couldn't afford a lawyer, black or white. My father understood the need for representation in the judicial system, and from the earliest stage of his career, he worked tirelessly to meet that need. This is why this scholarship is so important. Community is not just black people, my father would say. Community is a fellowship of those around you. I was brought up in an environment where service is expected. My father always had this abiding, almost primal instinct to make things right. He brought that intensity and process to everything. Whether it was debating the merits of his latest case over dinner with his family, expecting a seven-year-old who was simply trying to figure out the best strategy to get away with hiding his peas without having to eat them, to restructuring the NAACP or the Urban League, my father's compass always pointed in the same direction. And this is why the scholarship is so important. In fact, my father liked to often talk about the friction between Plessy and Brown. He used to remind us that as an American, you're entitled to all the fruits of liberty that this country has to offer. He would say that you can't offer the same thing if you don't, get, if you don't offer the same rights and opportunities to everyone, regardless of race. And this is why the scholarship is so important. The totality of many of my father's legal cases was not just about helping individuals secure legal redress with respect to their own individual jobs, but to effect change to an institutional system of inequity where communities of color lacked equal access to employment. And you know what? This is why this scholarship is so important. While it's easy to focus on the spectacular, controversial legal matters, my father's impact was subtle and far-reaching. For example, he was extremely proud of his service on the Consumer Protection Board, the creation of unit pricing, prescription drug pricing disclosure, ensuring consumers gain knowledge of what rights they were entitled to, to his work on Clearwaters, the University Foundation Board, the Albany Institute of History and Art. My father would often say, I wanted rather to take from the community, but to bring to the community. And this is why this scholarship is so important. So as many of you know, my father had been working on his memoirs for years. He always intended to entitle his book, Uncommon Law, The Darker Side of Albany. Sadly, my father didn't get the opportunity to complete his book, but don't worry, my son, a journalist currently based in New York City, and I will ultimately ensure that it's finished. My, my father always wanted Albany Law School to be strong. He noted that his alma mater had an excellent dean, president, board of trustees, and student body he felt was the cream of the crop. He noted that Albany Law School held a critical role in our community. He said, when you have good lawyers, you have a good community. With the creation of this scholarship, Albany Law School will have the ability to attract, as my father would say, the cream of the crop of students of color from across the nation, if not the globe. He'd also say, don't stop. Keep pushing. Because your job, our job, is not done. But he can finally rest. Because of him, because of your generous donations, because of your support, the darker side of Albany just got brighter. And that light will continue to burn in perpetuity. Especially my mother, for whom my father had no greater earthly love 
we thank the law school, all the generous donors who supported this scholarship. You were good by me, allergy medicine. Um, and of course, you all for this distinguished recognition of my father. Thank you.